Welcome to Studies in National and International Development. I'm Karen Davinsky with Scott and Shannon and Lauren. We have brought you this year uh, collectively, which we're heading towards the end of, but we're not at the end. Um, we're really pleased to have Elle Jones with us this afternoon when no less a person than Robert Main Robin Maynard says, Elle Jones is the black liberation visionary of our time. This is someone you know you have to pay attention to. Um, and over the past couple days since, he's, since she's been with us at Queen's, that statement, I tell you, is absolutely not an exaggeration. That statement is absolutely true. Uh, Elle Jones is with us from uh, Halifax, where she teaches at various uh, post-secondary institutions. There, she is a, one of the most versatile thinkers that I know. She's a poet, she's a scholar, she's a, uh, a journalist, she's an activist. Uh, she is the author of uh, many, well, books of poetry as well as plenty of journalism. She has a book coming out, um, which is the title of her talk today, Canada is So Polite, which is going to attract lots of attention just on the basis of the title alone, let alone the contents. It's coming out in the fall of 2020, the fall of this year. This has been a shit week for people who are interested in social justice in this country. And I gotta say, being able to have, knowing that Elle was on her way, being able to spend a little bit of time with her, and now this public talk has really helped to, um, helped to remind me, and I know it's gonna help to remind you, uh, that a better world is possible and that change is possible and that inspiration is absolutely possible. So thank you for coming. Oh, take it away. And that 
burnings, or Africville, or 2,000 missing and murdered indigenous women, but there's no genocide. It's rude to raise your voice in Canada, so let's just smile. Canadians aren't racist. We're peacekeepers. We're civilized. And Don Cherry's a national icon, but Canadians aren't violent or bigots. That's just hockey sticks. Canadians are quirky. So there's no dirty secrets here. Canada is just quirky. Like we say Z and not Z. But if you talk about racism, we'll be like, there's no need for that here. Canada is never abusive. Canada is so inclusive. Canada is so inclusive, and the proof is that we let other people be here. It's like, I just stole your land, and now I'm throwing a party, but you can stand at the back of you, show us ID. It's like, I just put you in the hospital. But here, let me start you an ID. It's like, what are you complaining for? You've got six weeks of the Book of Negroes on TV. It's like, we're going to hoard all the toys, but we might just give you one if you ask us nicely. It's like, we could acknowledge you have things to offer us, but that's not likely. It's like, P.K. Subin. We might let you be on the Olympic hockey team if you just stop being so black. I mean, so cocky. It's not about race. It's about character. It's just your attitude. We're not saying anything ugly. We just don't want you to embarrass the country. I mean, you should realize you're so lucky. It's not like America here. There's no history of segregation. That's why we wear Canadian flags on our backpacks when we travel abroad, because Canada has such a good reputation. Okay, we get Toronto. You probably don't, but you just don't know how to teach English to those Asians, or those houses in Africa. The country, of course, not the continent. Canadians are helpful because Canada is so tolerant, which means we know your culture is worse than ours, but we let you do your primitive things because Canada is so confident, so confident that we know better than you, because our way of doing things is just dominant. We even let you wear your hijab, unless it's Quebec. It's just unfortunate that your culture makes you so oppressed. It's not about racism, it's just about respect for our shared values. But we like your little costumes, they're so colorful, because Canada is multicultural. We just wish that all you people of color could be more punctual. It's just that white culture is just more functional. But we just love diversity and forget about how so much of the country votes conservative. It's just amazing that so many different cultures go to our child's nursery. But then we complain when you get an affirmative action bursary. Canada's multicultural, as long as you put white people first. We like your food, fun, and fashion, but past that, isn't it kind of like racism in reverse? I mean, it's so unfair how black and native people get free university. We just want to make sure that everyone's worthy because Canada has so much courtesy. We speak English and French. Okay, not perfectly. Okay, most people only know the French words for cereal. But let's not be absurd. This is still an English country, or haven't you heard? There's no distinct societies in Canada. And that's why Canada is so bland. Nothing to see here, just miles upon miles of stolen indigenous land. Just fishermen and farmers and maple syrup, because that's Canada's brand. Just fields of wheat and outdoor ice rinks and all thy sons command. No, there's no guns and violence here, just socialist health care plans. And just ignore the environmental damage of the oil sands, because Canada is so grand. So good at perpetuating this international scam. So sincere at pretending there's no blood on our hands because Canada's 
other people, they're so angry. But true Canadians just don't understand. Thing in Canada, how the skin just gets more black. And that lack of 
that is kind of like a tax, a couple years of extra sentence, and they tack onto our backs, and there's no weapons laws they pass. Do they claim it for the gangs? While there's white supremacists in prisons with KKK upon their hands, and there's guards who give them death. And the police can gun down teenagers and never hit the stand. I will even get into asking why we never charge the banks. But should anyone be sent to where they have to carry shanks? I watched police roll into Ferguson with snipers riding tanks. I don't believe you have to nod at them for justice to be miscarried. When I've known men so long in prison that their babies now are married. Hell, I've known men so long in prison, they first meet their son out on the range, and I don't know that it is justice if we decide that you can never change. And I don't know that it is justice when there's men inside a cage, and I don't know that it is justice if the scales will never budge, and men in prison with so much legal knowledge, they could be a judge. And maybe they could have gone in that direction if they only got a nudge. And it's true. I have known men who did a killing for a grudge. But does three seconds of your life make you only human slug? And let's not talk about the corporations that profit off it all, like a predatory phone company gouging prisoners for a call, women going broke when a man's conviction's not her fault. I could talk about the scanners and how many hits are false, families turned away after driving up for hours because I don't know that it is justice when it's so easy to abuse powers. I could talk to you for days. It would all be the same ruin, and I know men who did their time out in prison with a soon, but they'll never be set free to share their voices in these rooms. And I know lawyers, guards, and judges who do their best to change the tune. But in a society that's broken, that's like reaching for the moon. And I confess, I once believed that every person could be saved. And it took a couple of years, and it's true that I got played, and I had to face that there's some people who seem to want to dig a grave. But I still don't believe that they deserve solitary just because they misbehaved. And I still believe we can do better, and we have to find a way. And I'd still rather know I tried, even if it means I failed, because it never will be justice. Well, our solution still is jail. So from the people doing time in Kent, down to people in remove, from the people in the counties, up to people in the shoe. If that was your life story, what do you think? Shots to the head 
while he was lying there asleep until the indigenous youth was the only one found guilty. And there were comments that he deserved it in the secret Facebook group for the RCMP and a group of Saskatchewan farmers, of course, they all agreed and the publishing companies offered him an exclusive book deal and a jury pool. A jury pool. It didn't look like me. And there were hundreds of thousands of dollars donated to his GoFundMe of Canada, where indigenous lives still fetch a bounty for one little, two little, three little. Raymond Cormier walked into court and walked out. Killing an indigenous girl equals reasonable doubt. The only person on trial was Tina Fontaine. The Globe and Mail headline said there were drugs and booze in her veins. The cops had her to stop and they waved her on through. Just like the police asked Colton Bushy's mother if she was drunk when they delivered the news in the jury pool. The jury pool. It didn't look like you. And while Stanley and Cormier are free as a bird, Adam Capay was held four years in solitary until the time blurred. By the time the ombudsman got to him, he was slurring his words. They said they forgot him of what even occurred. They say, that's an accident, but haven't you heard? In federal prisons, indigenous women make up more than one third. And over half of the juvenile facilities and the majority in care were taken from their families and just take a walk through maximum security or take a look around remand if you can't afford the surety. And they lock Renee Ackerby away into obscurity. But then they tell me white is the equivalent of purity. And since we can't be innocent, we should bow to their authority. We can't win. We can't win. Not when session is in. Not with histories upon histories of savages and civic will arise for the jury. The court will begin selecting one white, two white, all white jury. You can dress as sexy Pocahontas if you want for Halloween. And Brad Barton was acquitted of murder in the first degree, while Cindy Gladue's vagina was displayed in court for all to see. John Wayne is still an icon of the silver screen. Birth of a Nation's been a blockbuster since 1915 and has gated communities where black folk are never seen. When they stop us on the street, they say, that's just routine. And my friends walk into court under a portrait well, I tried to buy him suits while the cops showed up in jeans. We worried he'd look guilty if he wasn't cut so clean. They couldn't show any evidence to even place him at the scene. When it came time to read the verdict, you all know what I mean. Thanks to one white, two white, all white jury. And the media? Well, they said from his face, they just knew he couldn't feel. And now the system tells him that perhaps he can appeal. But on the appeals court, there's one white, two white, three white judges. We can't win. We can't win, not when they see a black skin. And once the door locks, no one can see what happens within. They claim you can try a habeas in court, but then the institution spins, and who'll believe a criminal? And what they have to say, and now my friends being there on lockdown for 23 hours a day. And the phone calls only come when your family can pay. When they have you down instead, the phone doesn't come around at all. My other friend broke his leg, ankle weak, he had to call. And a third's been on a hunger strike three weeks behind those walls. They spent money <coughs> on more weapons, getting the guards some pepper balls. We claw our way into the halls of justice, but our voice is just too small. We can get one or two more judges, but they still write the law. A guy tried to slit his throat, and they just wrapped him up with gauze. They released a woman to a bus stop in the winter and said, that's just protocol, just like Neil Stonechild and those prairie starlight toys. And there's another woman, 
another woman who set herself on fire. But when you die in a prison in my province, no one has to inquire. No charges pressed for guards who watch Ashley Smith expire. But when prisoners hit the stand, it's them they call the liars. Andrew Loku, shot by the police in 21 seconds. Freddie Villanueva executed because police said they felt threatened. Sammy Yatim, shot on a streetcar. He'd already dropped his weapon. But if a cop guns down a black man, he never has to reckon. We can't win. We can't win. The not guilty verdict is in. Because it's one white, two white, three white jurors. Four white, five white, six white jurors. Ten white, eleven white, twelve white jurors. It's an all white jury. Again. change tacks a little. Um, shout out to the people that were solidarity protesting this morning with what 
Pasuatin and I'm the Tyndaga people. Um, I don't know if, how much you know about Nova Scotia and the Alton gas movement. You know what's happening here? So we have something very similar happening in Nova Scotia. The grassroots grandmothers have been defending the Shubenacadie River for about three years um, to stop this project. Alton gas is a subsidiary of Alta Gas, which is a Calgary company that is planning on uh, storing the natural gas from like fracking in the river. Uh, despite numerous environmental reports showing how much that will affect the wildlife and poison the river. Uh, they're going ahead with this. They actually arrested the grandmothers from this site in spring, so arrested three of the grandmothers and are dragging them through court. The judge actually ruled that um, while they do have treaty rights to the river, that does not extend to the banks. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the, they're also challenging that as a constitutional ruling. So they asked me to write a poem for them for one of their fundraisers, so I'm going to share it and also in solidarity with what is happening all over this country as well. I don't have it memorized, I probably should, but I don't. Oh, you can say the refrain. Uh, when I say we will, you say stop all the gas. We will stop all the gas. We will stop all the gas. I'll point at you. <laughs> all these corporations do is go around and frack. All these politicians do is scratch each other's backs and they sit around and laugh while they count their stacks of cash while they poison all the rivers and turn Mother Earth to ash. And police be on their side as they turn the world to trash. And there's media on their side posting misleading photographs when the people rise en masse and say, no, you won't trespass. They can put people into prison, arrest them, and harass where they can kiss some treaty ass. From out of Bookduck to Stewiak, this is the territory of the Mi'kmaq, and you know that's just a fact. So no, they won't extract. No government contracts. From grandmothers to warriors, we will stop Alton gas. Nature does not belong to you. Being true before 1752, and it was just as true back when Mi'kmaq got rid of SWM. Against the thumpers and police, Elsie beat the drum for peace. Women waving feathers till the fracking had to cease, and now they're bringing out the salt. A Mother Earth assault, dumping brine into the river, and that's why they have to halt pipelines leaking into water, then they say it's not their fault. They got money in the vault. They think they run the court. But all of that is nothing when the people bring support so their pipelines will not pass. No toxins in our water, air, or grass. No children drinking poison from our river wells and taps so we'll push them off the map for the salmon, cod, and bass. From grandmothers to warriors, we will stop all to gas. There's another way to be. We can live in harmony. There's a third eye way of seeing that these oil execs don't see. There's a better way than oil and chemicals in soil, or signs and reserves reading, this water has to boil, or making future generations wish that they'd ever seen a fish. We ain't standing for that ish. The people can resist. No more species all erased. There's a better way than waste, and it's up to us to look our grandchildren in the face and say we went and stopped the drills. Their cabins didn't fill. We stood up to the government and their rulings and their bills, and it doesn't happen fast, but their power will not last. Grandmothers, allies, warriors, we will stop Alton Gas. And the rivers will still flow. Alton Gas has got to go. And the medicines will grow, no drills beside our homes. It'll be like they've never been when the water's running clean. No more benzene and xylene. We want an earth that's green. And there will never be consent to twist the world and bend. Check the language of the treaties, that's never what they meant. Activism's just the rent. For the time on earth we spend, people here to represent, there is unity and strength. So you can tell the parliament, CEOs and presidents, every time you try destruction, the people will prevent. Block courthouses and bypass, the nation.
nations will hold fast. For our mothers, children, warriors, we will stop all to gas. Mother Earth will win the struggle. We will stop all to gas. So the premise of this poem is that Benedict Cumberbatch owes me reparations. Because <laughs> he does. So my grandma, I talk about this in the poem, uh, my grandmother was a Cumberbatch from Barbados originally by way of Trinidad. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, you know Benedict Cumberbatch is, right? So I don't know if you know this, but his great whatever grandfather in the 17th century was the wealthiest man in the world. Sugar was like the oil crop of that time. Um, and he owned the Cleland Plantation in Barbados, which was a brutal slave plantation. Uh, when Facebook first started, they had this uh, site like Cumberbatch Family Reunion, and my sister joined it, and they were like, why are there so many black people? <laughs> and my sister was like, because you own this all. And then they had a picture of like the family mansion, and my sister was like, great, now I know where to come for my reparations, and they blocked me the site. <laughs> when I first performed this poem, I believe it was in Victoria, I got booed off the stage, so I'll tell you where people started booing, and you can boo me. <laughs> Dear Benedict, I just wanted to write you this letter to send you my address. I'm still waiting on my check, and the Hobbit and Star Trek did pretty well, so I'm guessing you got the cash. <laughs> so tell you what, you send me a money order with my reparations, and I'll send you an invitation for our family reunion. We can hold it on the Cleland Plantation, Barbados. It will be like coming home. Well, at least the house for you and the field for me, but those are just details we can work out later. Your side of the family and mine can finally catch up. We can chat about how racist it is that Matthew McConaughey won the Oscar instead of 12 years a slave, or wait, maybe that's kind of an awkward topic for conversation given the circumstances and all, because my grandmother was a Cumberbatch too, Benedict. Oh, how can that be when she didn't look Scottish? Well, you see that ish went down like this. My great-great-great-great-grandmother was snatched from Africa and bought by your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather to cut the sugar cane. He gave her his name, so it's kind of like my relation. Ben? Can I call you Ben, cousin? Or is that too close, too quick? Maybe you just need a little time to adjust to the darkest side of the coast. But look on the bright side, Ben. If someone ever calls you racist, you can say, I can't be. Half of my family is black. <laughs> you see, we've got your back now, cousin. A whole new cover batch of black relations, and you can meet us all because we can all use some reparations. So we're cheering you on to success, Benedict. Nobody wants you to have those blockbuster hits more than us. I heard your mom was scared we'd come through the cusp, but we're not trying to make you bankrupt. I'm just saying a cut of that trust fund could make our lives improve, cousin. I maybe mean, we're like a dozen times removed, but it's kind of weird for me, too. I'm dealing with some issues, too. I mean, I should be blood with someone like Chiwetel Ejiofor, and I can't even pronounce his name. But every time I see those credits roll, there's my family name on screen, and I want to be proud, but that's some confusing shit to process. <laughs> so I'm just trying to announce that I'm dealing with some heavy feelings, too. You know they say family over every. So let's get together and start talking amounts. But I know this is kind of awkward for you. This is where people start doing I know this is kind of awkward for you, because you know you're probably not all Caucasian, right? And your hair's looking kind of wavy there, <laughs> Might be a touch of the slave there is all I'm saying. Maybe your great-great-great-great-grandfather stuck his Benedict into one of my ancestors, and now some fraction of you is African, too. Oh, don't worry. I'm not trying to put your career down to affirmative action or anything. You can still be an actor. 
your talent, so we don't have to get into identity politics, Wendy. <laughs> Nobody will say you only got onto the most beautiful people list because they needed some diversity. And if some of your fangirls act a little less thirsty because, ew, they don't do black guys, at least now there'll be rumors that you have a huge fetish. I said And there probably won't be as much fan fiction and stuff written about you because it's kind of hard for people to acknowledge us as human, but at least you got to enjoy like 400 years of white privilege before you had to encounter this shit. And I'm not saying it's your fault, Benedict. I know your hand never held a whip, but I can't help but notice that you attended Harrow. Tuition costs 33,000 pounds a year there. Wow, that's kind of a lot, Benedict. And my wallet is looking kind of narrow. How many pounds of cane did my ancestors cut and lift to build that account? So don't we deserve our portion of the spoils? Just a little bit. You have to admit, you did benefit from the extortion of our labor. So it's only fair to give us our share of your fortune. This part is the God's honest truth. P.S. My family stole some of your family's shit when we rampaged through the big house after we chased you out. So <laughs> me and I can around silver knives to make up the set. I can get you that thing. There's a big C on the handle, so we never forget. We bring them out on fancy occasions. We're just waiting for you to send us our compensation. Let's make it easy and say, a million a plate. I'm not greedy. I can take payment by wire transfer, direct deposit, or cash in hand. So let's balance my bank statement, and then we'll really have a celebration. So Benedict, it's all on you. I know you can't come through. Give me my reparations. Signed, L. Jones, descendant of Zilla Cumberbatch, emancipated from slavery now for five generations. <laughs> wonder how we're supposed to celebrate. When there's black life being taken on almost every date, and any holiday can be turned into a wake when we're driving on the street or just sitting in our own apartment late. White people call 911 on children when they're just selling lemonade at a corner store, a park, a pool party, or parade, and so black parents tell their children, be careful where you play. Sean Bell gunned down at his bachelor party with his wedding the next day. Jamel Robertson just wanted to buy his baby Christmas gifts, so he was working late. Mike Brown executed just weeks after he graduated. Trayvon Martin just buying Skittles, but he walked behind a gate, and that Zimmerman stopped behind him like his black body was fake. Seven-year-old Aaliyah Stanley Jones gunned down in a police raid, and when you treat black life this way, it would be okay if we were filled with hate but we still pour out love because it isn't yours to take. So we still laugh and dance and sing and barbecue and pray until some white woman sees us and gets on the phone to say that we're causing a disturbance and she just doesn't feel safe. But still, we keep joying in our being with our bodies taking space. This gift of black life is from our ancestors' sacrifice and we want it at a price from fields of cotton, cane, and rice. On the altar of white prophets, our bodies were crucified, and they said we were evil darkness, and they the sacred light. They told us suffering and slavery would bring us paradise, but here upon this earth, we were never recognized. But we have not only survived, we've created and we've thrived, and so we're a living rebuke to white people's appetite and a reminder of what they despise if they ever look inside. 
that's a history rewrite in our sinews, bones, and eyes, which is why they call police when we're just walking idly by. And that's why tasers, guns, and badges are the powers they exercise, but our bodies are still here, and we are still alive. And so the name of our martyr is not something I'll avoid. Tamir Rice was just a little boy outside playing with a toy. Before our seed can grow, they come with weapons to destroy, but still we fill with love that we continue to deploy. We have plumbed the depths of suffering, and there we find black joy. So let me say, Laquan McDonald, Philando Castile, Rakea Boy, Andrew Lokru, Abdurrahman Abdi, Orlando Brown, Oscar Grant, Tanisha Anderson, Melissa Williams, Sandra Bland. I can't breathe, choked Eric Garner as he breathed his last. Charlena Laos was pregnant, her baby never had a chance. We pour libations for the dead and we ritually chant, and their names, like seeds on soil, become the roots we plant. You see, we love each other in our blackness, though this world tells us we can't. And so we'll laugh and sing and praise and barbecue and dance and we'll welcome in our cousins and our grandparents and aunts and we'll continue to wear our hoodies and our ball caps and our pants and they'll say that we're no angels in those angry headline rats but we'll still be filled with pride of being that no one can supplant though this black life being murdered on almost every day. And sometimes we're tired of this burden when we're carrying the weight but let our anger be a stone that causes ripples in the lake because we're made of more resilience than anyone could break. We are made of stronger stuff than could ever be erased because when you treat black life this way, we'd be right to fill with hate. But we still pour out love because it isn't yours. I'm a prison abolitionist, but that is not an uncomplicated position. I think sometimes when we inhabit these positions, we talk about them as though they're easy, as though we came to them easily. Um, and it's actually a complex position. It's one that you have to inhabit shades of gray. And as you do the work, you encounter you know, different conversations. What about sex offenders? Do I feel okay talking to a dangerous offender? What am I going to do if this person harmed a woman in my community? What if they're a trafficker? The traffic's black for women, but they're also... So you have to have those conversations, very complex. And I don't know if we talk enough about that as we talk about these positions, like how much agony there sometimes is, how much conversation there is, how much work we do with ourselves to figure out where those lines are. But of course, uh, there's some people that, you know, you can be an abolitionist and also be pressed. R. Kelly is one of those people for me. So, you know, how do we as black women be abolitionists, hold an abolitionist position, and also fucking think R. Kelly should be in jail? So, that's kind of his moment, I guess. Well, not really, but I mean, I'm just saying that, like, um, we are allowed to have it, inhabit complex positions, even as we theoretically understand what our position is, we have emotional feelings. So, here's this poem. You can get this about R. Kelly, so I'll trigger a moment. Everybody knew in Chicago. Everybody knew. When that limo pulled up outside the junior high school, and nobody stopped him, nobody told him. Some shoulders were shrugged and a couple eyes rolled. You know young girls these days, their bodies look so old. But it was hidden in plain sight. Everybody knew. 
age ain't nothing but a number. We all know what that means, but he was a powerful man, and they were just teens, and even worse, they were blessed. So we laugh while he teased. She should have moved out of the way, we believe. He made white men money, so he didn't even lose his deal. Someone's meal ticket, so who cares how they feel? Collateral damage was all the little black girls could eat. Even Aaliyah didn't matter, and she was a star. If it was one little white girl, he'd be behind bars, but the skin was too dark, so they got in his car, he took them shopping, and what happens after? That's just how things are. People went to that funeral, saw girls in those rooms, and they closed the doors on it, but everybody knew, still booked him for concerts and bought his music on iTunes. Did we run up on his studio, on his mansion, on the street? Nah, people lined up outside the court saying R. Kelly should be free. And there were black women defending him as far as I can see. What does that say about what we've been conditioned to be? Did we learn that behind closed doors of our own families? So we let him get away with saying, nah, that wasn't me. And those little black girls, they can't sing or make a beat. So he went on down the line choosing his next fresh meat. Not America's dad like Bill Cosby. They can't dribble like Kobe. So no one does nothing because we say they're no use. Don't act like this is news. Don't act like you're surprised. We all know 13-year-old girls with 25-year-old guys. We all know outside the group homes the cars wait in lines. We all know predators at the mall eyeing girls up for size. We all know workers, traffic girls, right from the colored homes. If that was one little white girl whose names would be known, it was dozens of white girls who would be written on the but it's just little girls in the hood, so it passes us by, and if her abuser finds Christ, well, then he's forgiven. She's still being shamed for the pain that she's living. Pillar of the community, they'll say of him, now that he's saved. Ruined disgrace will be written on her grave because everybody knows. They just put it on us. How you out here looking so good with those tight jeans on your butt? Why are you dancing up on Drake with that grown woman bust? Why are you getting that car if you wasn't a slut? You must have known, must have wanted your practically adult. And we're called ratchet bitches, hoes, or a mutt. And we only have value if someone gets a cut. It's not like it's a secret. It isn't undercover. If people have anything to say, they mostly blame the mothers. Maybe blame the culture, anybody but the rapists. Even in our homes, when we're supposed to be the safest. In our schools, and in our churches, where nobody can save us. All around society, because everybody hates us, or at least just disregards us, expects us just to take it. So I've seen 12-year-olds in foster care with her abuser's baby. I saw the ads go up on Backpage and her pimp and a Mercedes, and my own grandmother told me, just remember you're a lady when he leaves you, disrespects you, when he runs around and hits. And I know we're living out the legacies of the slave ships. Sapphires and Jezebels bear breasts and winding hips, so when they rape us in this century, we're just playing out the script, a script that everybody knows. And we all will know again. But there'll still be powerless black girls and rich, powerful men, and what will we say then? We'll stay quiet as a mouse. I mean, there's a pussy-grabbing president right in the White House. There's a rapist on the Supreme Court, and they never kicked him out. Don't think it's just black men we never say a word about. We can shout for young black girls, make films or say me too, but please don't act surprised because everybody knew.
have this thing in Halifax, the International Security Forum. Thank you, Peter McKay. Uh, so it was supposed to, like, we pay for it. It's like taxpayer pay. And they just basically have war criminals that come to the Westin Hotel every year. And, like, when you protest that this sniper is on the roof. So every year I do a poem for this, like, war criminal convention. Um, we've had McCain was there. Condoleezza Rice was there one year. The Israeli defense minister is, like, always there. Um, all the weapons manufacturers, all the right-wing think tanks, all the newspaper editors. And they literally, like, sit together and plot war. They used to have the full agenda up. They got wise and took it out, but you'd be able to see like from years past. So like 2010, it would be like Syria, the past to Iran. <laughs> you know, and you're like no, like it's just right out there, like war on China. They do these really punny, like sometimes racist titles. Like they'll be like, I don't know, they'll make puns with like Chinese names. So it's fucked up. Um, <laughs> so like I said, no one knows about this. It's really weird. So I always do these rally poems. So you can probably figure out the refrain too. So this is just an example of also public rallying, trying to get you hyped against war. They say there's one rule for the few and another for the many. Trillions of dollars for the banks and the poor get not a penny. And they've convinced us all that the crumbs they give are plenty and that's why people in Alberta elected Jason Kenney. Well that, and that they always have some brown folk as the enemy. When indigenous people block the pipelines, they send the military and there's lead all in the water, but is water necessary? And you can't even afford the plot in your family cemetery. But just blame the immigrants in the media commentary. They got the white folks marching to save the jobs millionaires on cherry. And whether we wear poppies got the white folk in a frenzy and in the Toronto mayoral election, the third place was a Nazi. They voted in Doug Ford because his brothers seem so friendly and they'll sell you dollar beers while your pension fund stays empty. Don't have any savings while your banker drives a Bentley and they hold up billionaires as the people we should envy. Children in this country can't put breakfast in their belly. People on assistance can't even pay to ride the ferry. They make billions off the weapons that are used against Yemenis. But if you possess a gun, well, then the courts will give you 20. But when corporations violate the government, we'll condemn them. Because there's one law for the people, but for the rich, the laws are bendy. And you end your life in debt, and the burden is too heavy, so your kids go off to foreign countries where they end up buried. So to the killers at the top, not one more drop. Generals, guards, and cops knock one more drop, and they plunder, steal, and rob, and they strip us of our jobs, but we will not join their mobs, not one more drop, not one more drop of poor and working class blood for their capitalistic wars. So they send the working class to die in wars we can't find in the atlas. Military surplus goes to cops who use black men as target practice. They keep the oil wells running, guarded by private military contractors, while the sanctions they impose kill millions of Iraqis. In their black site prisons, locals tortured by their captors. But then they say that terrorism was caused by other factors. Military budget keeps exploding like a nuclear reactor while the lives of ordinary people broken into fractures. They'll offer luxury condos to the Toronto Raptors while the homeless on the street can't even find a benefactor. When WikiLeaks showed their war crimes, they imprison all the hackers and they fire all the athletes who tell us Black Lives Matter. But the war machine keeps rolling, like weed into a tractor. Hollywood propaganda, we bought snipers played by actors, and they tell us hope and change came with President Obama so the people vote again for their neoliberal masters. Don't even watch the news, it's all corporate pay chatter. All designed for you to serve your children on a platter. Slavery is a choice, says another foolish rapper, and now Amazon's invested so your doorbell is a tracker. Well, the workers are on food stamps, and death row is getting blacker. Preaching prosperity gospel, so you're brainwashed by a pastor. Corporations making money after every disaster. They send the UN troops to Haiti and spread cholera in the water. And so there's endless wars and endless blood that splatters. Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, it's all another 
chapter and there's always some brown person that they'll say is the attacker and every politician paid by corporate backers. So to the killers at the top, not one more drop. Generals, guards, and cops, not one more drop. And they plunder, steal, and rob. So they strip us of our jobs, but we will not join their mobs. Not one more drop, not one more drop of poor and working class blood for their capitalistic wars. So now there's open slave markets because the US destroyed Libya. We took in a few thousand refugees and say we're saving Syria. Stopped the terrorism from Turkey to Nigeria and now a military coup that's taking down Bolivia. They say they're white and Christian so they cut indigenous insignia while Nassara in Brazil kills black folk like it's just trivial. Canadian mining companies in the Amazon with private militia, rainforest burning but we raise money for the Notre Dame Basilica. Cause white supremacy is spreading across the globe like a bacteria. There's wars across the border between Pakistan and India. British colonial legacies left conflict in every arena but they say that we're just savage and they talk of us as primitive. So Trump builds the border wall, just like the walls in Israel. Obama used his drone strikes to send teenagers to oblivion. There's bases around the world, from Japan to the Caribbean, and the powerful manipulate the people to be their useful idiots. Race and religion are their tools to sow division. Populist politicians, while rich folk fake break in another billion, and the rich buy all the votes while the ballot box is filling, because the military-industrial complex always makes a killing. So to the killers at the top, not one more drop. Generals, guards, and cops, not one more drop. They can plunder, steal, and rob. They can strip us of our jobs, but we will not join their mobs. Not one more drop, not one more drop of poor and working class blood for their capitalistic wars. Not one more drop of black and working class blood for their imperialistic wars. She can't bond. We know that wouldn't happen if she was middle class and blonde, but somehow they never showed 
when she was calling 911 and the day that she goes missing, nobody will respond. The headline says she was an addict and she was well known to the cops and the picture they use on the news is her latest mugshot. She's doing time on charges that never were her own. Her abusive boyfriend uses her apartment to hide the gun. She was the driver for the robbery we all know that he done. Now she writes him letters from her cell. They go unanswered, every one. It's not like poor black women smuggle drugs for fun. For men who send 10 women through the airport, then go on the run, then threaten and assaulted her till she swallowed those condoms. Now she's locked in federal prison while traffickers import tons. She just wants to feed her children. Now cops tell her they'll be gone. Men exploit her body from the day that she is born. Her mother turns the other way to keep him safe and warm. He'll only do a year or two if ever he gets caught while they've locked her down instead because they accused her of assault. She's having flashbacks when they strip search her like rubbing wounds with salt and now her body's being exploited one more time up in the courts. They tell her pay the victim surcharge, but she can't because she's poor, so she makes her money on the streets on the corner where she's forced. The cop took a so-called freebie, but of course, she can't report. She's never had a place to sleep that isn't someone else's floor, and then the undercover breaches her when she goes to make a score. They say that they'll convict her of committing welfare fraud and end up piling up the charges on her criminal record. They make her do the time, then they start proceedings to deport. She lived her whole life here in foster care, but no one ever thought to get her citizenship, so they just never sent the form. They change her to her bed in the hospital ward. They punish her for having children. Why can't she just abort? She only raised another generation for the taxpayer to support, and she's not the ideal victim. So I guess it's all her fault. She's been 90% of victims doing time behind our walls. But when we talk about justice for rape survivors, we don't mean her at all. If you've done shit in your life, recognize it. Apologize. Then move forward and let it lie. If you've got shit in your life, analyze it. Then energize it. Move yourself forward and let it lie. If they treat you like shit, strategize. Mobilize to get them out of your life. If he says you ain't shit, then realize he is speaking bullshit and lies and reprioritize. No, you deserve better than that, and say your goodbyes. I know you have it in you, girl, to rise. I have seen other women come through these trials, and you will survive. What doesn't kill us makes us wise. If they say you can't do shit, then organize. Don't be surprised when you discover how strong you are inside. The sky is the limit, so don't compromise. Don't let them cut you down to size. If you are feeling bad shit, then let yourself cry. Know that you are bigger than your shit and keep your eyes on the prize. If you think shit is more than you can bear, just hang on tight. White knuckle it through until help can arrive. I promise. 
then memorize. Repeat to yourself, I am too great to minimize. My life means too much to jeopardize. She cannot fuck with me now because I am immunized. Say the worship was thrown at me and I am still alive. Say my shit is too powerful to be euthanized. Say that by not being beaten down by shit, I have appetized the next so I familiarize your shit now so I can neutralize. You have exercised your worst shit and I'm still standing by. I can dust off that shit and hold my head up high. Say I've seen it all now so I am qualified. Say you will not catch me with that same shit twice. Say I have decided to live so I can testify that there is no shit that can undermine. When you have made it through shit, then inspire it. Don't give shit back to other people. Just you have been through shit. You have the power to advise. Give all the help you can provide. Know that coming through shit gives you the knowledge to guide. Remember, at the end of each tunnel, there is a light. Reach back and bring others alongside. Know that you are a goddess in disguise. Suffering through shit brings you close to divine. Say I embrace all of my shit because it is mine. Come to terms with your shit and harmonize. Don't be ashamed of shit that you've done because it clarifies. Demolish shit that you've done but then let it fly. Say I had to experience that shit to come through the fire. Don't go back to that shit, just let it expire. If you are caught up in shit, then override. If shit is bringing you down, then purify. If you got too much shit, then simplify. When you have dreams for the future, past shit don't apply. Remember, out of cocoons come butterflies. Visualize what you want and then actualize. Remember, your true value cannot be priced. <coughs> and don't ever let shit demoralize. Because you are the shit girl, so you can never be denied. Asian Diane wanted told me nobody cares about this shit and doesn't want to read it. So, yeah. Any other questions? Anyone? This can be like random stuff. It doesn't have to be. Questions? Nope. Nope. Go ahead. What do I listen to? What do I listen to? Um, well, because <laughs> we have like requests on the radio show, I listen to like a ton of like the worst trap that like everybody. <laughs> Like in prison, like so we're always like they literally into like pussy badass. I really like T Grizzly actually. Um, when we do campaigns, like when we're doing um, like deportation campaigns or oh that we always pick songs for the campaigns and kind of listen to them obsessively. So for Randy, it was Glory by John Legend. We keep listening to that. Um, Abdul, it was oh it was like Baka Not Nice for some reason. We just like that. So we had that for a minute. Um, first day out, T Grizzly was like our playlist. Um, I like a lot of Jamaican stuff because I'm obsessed with going to Jamaica. So um, a lot of the reggae from there, so Chesbet, um, I like Utan Fire, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I'm not like a huge music listener. Like my partner is really into music and I just hear what he's listening to and sometimes say, oh, I like that. But I'm more like a YouTube <laughs> watcher. I, I don't know, I don't think so much to me, but I sort of come across it. But a lot of the music I hear is actually on the radio show and it's what the prisoners shoot. So that's like my main engagement actually. 
Um, but they've introduced us to a lot, like a lot of stuff that we wouldn't listen to otherwise, so that's cool. Buju, I like a lot, actually. Go ahead. All right, so do you, you teach at a university? Yeah. I really loved the way you did this. I mean, I don't know how many other people, I've never heard talks like this before. <laughs> I mean, it's really too bad that, you know, other people who are teaching don't speak like, the, like you know, in this way. Like well, I mean, I don't teach in poetry all the time, but. But even in the beginning with the passion and the unconventional presentation, I mean, you're not, I mean, a lot of the time I think people are almost like trying not to fall asleep, you know, listening to someone who's sort of just talking on and on. But it's really powerful, I have to say. Well, thank it's you. It's really great. I think, um, so for all the work, the first listeners and my first commitments are to the people in prison. Like, it's about them. It's their lives. They have the right to say what should be said or not. So they hear everything first. They, um, for my book, the first editor is like, it's me to the prison edit. Um, and we pay them. Whenever we ask them to do work, we pay them like RA wages, like what we would pay an RA. Um, to do the work and just tell them to charge the hours. And like, Jerry's so funny because he's like, I'm like, it's like $20 an hour. And he's like, that's like two weeks' pay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, they're ripping you off, you know. And he was like, I'll just say I did one hour. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's fine. Like, charge it. Um, but that's really important to me because I am not a prisoner, you know. So they are ultimately only stories that can be shared if people want them to. So people have said yes, you know, like, say these things. They all hear them. They get to know, and if something doesn't ring true for them, they would get to say so. Um, so yeah, and I think that's partly what rings through is it's um, like work that comes from people and with people, and I think that's probably what you're hearing. Hopefully, well, that's what I hope to passion. convey. You can tell it's genuine, and it moves people. I'm so, speaking for others, maybe, but I mean, I what I hope in the work is that it's not like just. I mean, because this is lived. I always talk about. I mean, to me, I always try to remind myself is that. Every time we talk about a human rights case, there's somebody whose rights are being violated because of that. And it's our responsibility to remember that. Um, when we were doing the Abdul Abdi's deportation, like we had to go to the media for that. Like it was life-saving. So this is a deportation of a child who had come to Canada um, at age six with his sister. Family was dead. Um, he was living. He was never set foot in Somalia. He had been born in a refugee camp. Um, they brought him to Nova Scotia. They were quickly made wards of the state. Um, they did offer Somali translation to his mother. So she did not know why the children were taken away. This is actually an act that she identified with each other. Um, and then as permanent wards of the state, they never got their citizenship. Um, so that made Abdul vulnerable. He was denied the right. He didn't have rights. He was moved to 31 homes by the time he was 19 years old. Batuma, his sister, was incredibly also moved around, but not as citizenship. I only found out last month that when she was leading the fight for her brother, CBSA had actually threatened her with deportation, even though she had no criminal charges. They just did it to intimidate her. Um, so, like, when we were doing that case, we, you know, it was a number one story in Canada for, like, about a month in, like, early 2018. But Abdul's very uncomfortable with that in a lot of ways. Like, he doesn't like the idea that when, you know, you look up his name, it's there, and, like, all this information about your abuse and what happened to you. So that's a price that people pay. And one of the things I think everyone I've ever advocated did is they always say, I'm doing this for other people. Like Abdul said, no other kid should have to go through this. You know, Fatuma, and I'm like, how did you stand up in front of Trudeau and confront Trudeau while you're seven months pregnant and supposed to be on bed rest with like a deportation looming over your head as like this, you know, woman that's never been given anything by anyone, like doesn't have citizenship, you know, completely precarious. How do you do that and stand up in front of Trudeau? Like when we were standing there and she's like, pussy, no other kid shouldn't have to go through this, right? So I think the generosity that other people, um, that people in these precarious situations, what they do and take on in terms of the kind of courage they have and the kind, kinds of risks they take to backlash in their names, um, 
But I think we always have to remind ourselves of that. And then when we tell those stories, I think that we have a responsibility to them and to those stories to convey it as best we can, right? Because they can't always testify to these things, but we have to do it with their permission. So I try to do that. I mean, I'm not always right. I don't know if there's always a right answer to the question of like, how do you share things that are really triggering or like, how do you talk about violence or you know, how do you witness? Those are like difficult questions. I don't think everybody's agreed on them, but I think I try my best to, to do it with some integrity and maybe that's like, I hope that it's heard in the story. These are, are real things, right? This is actual people's lives and there's an urgency to what we're talking about, right? And as we're listening. Go ahead. So I wonder, my question, I think Bill told that a little bit, this is this amazing. <coughs> I just think with the passion, the anger, the joy, the humor, you know, all this. So how do you, once you create a conference, so you had a week to write that last poem, how do you know when that's it? That's what went all galvanized right. the movement. That's the rally. Oh, I'm just like set it to get it. <laughs> Honestly, you just kind of write it like this stuff that I've written that I like. I did this woman's march poem at like the first woman's march, and I hated the poem. I was oh my god, and then like everybody loved the poem. And then the more you do it, the more you can. And once people like it, you kind of vibe. Sometimes I don't like it, and then other people it was just the right thing to do in that moment, or you know. Um, but I don't like do a lot of like editing. Um, it's just kind of. I, I write under pressure for the most part. I'm like, oh shit, this thing's in two hours. <laughs> I don't have a poem. Um, like, honestly, it, it's kind of that. But I, I'm, I'm pretty much excited to get it. Like, I just do it. And then some poems stick around. Some poems, obviously the ones that I have memorized and stuff, the ones I do all the time. The ones that I just like, oh, I'll just randomly do a war poem. I haven't done that since November. Like, I did it at the rally, and then I never did it again, you know? But I thought I'd share it so we could talk about war. But, um, so it's just a mix. Um, but it's a, like the sounds, like, I did it working or not, I think, to a certain extent. And you kind of know when the thing's working. Like, that style of rhyme carries you, that stuff doesn't carry you. And then sometimes, like performance carries you, so it might not be the strongest poem, but you can sell it. Like, <laughs> so it's a mix of those things with, yeah, with stuff that's like, yeah, prison stuff, whatever. Like the per people have heard it, right? So the prisoners have heard it; it's been through them. So like that's the process. But in terms of it, I don't like stress. I'm always like, I don't think that's the right word, but whatever. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Like I, I just kind of, to be honest, I, I'm not materialistic. I'm not doing marks to show other. I'm like, it's for the people. Um, it's meant to be for the moment. I believe in it being ephemeral in a lot of cases. Like when you're doing something for a rally, I'm just gonna rile people up, it has a response. It's for the person who asked for it. So it has a kind of um, present time quality to it. <coughs> like, yeah, like I, I, I think it's more about the movement than about like carefree crafted, avant-garde poetry. Like that's just, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, and then just because of the circumstances when I'm writing. Um, I was saying to another class, but uh, Abdul again, um, one of the things he told me that has sort of haunted me ever since, and I think of like Sophia Hartman talking about being haunted, you know, by the archive. And he told me when he was in Lindsay, awaiting, like when he thought he was getting deported, and everybody gets deported out of Lindsay, uh, he's sitting in a cell and there's um, like names and dates all in the cell. And he realizes that's the date of, that he was deported. So it's people that are sat in that cell being deported before him. And he imagines that his own name is going up next, right? Like he, he feels that. And he experiences this like sitting in his own grave, like, literally sitting in an open grave. Um, and he tells me about this moment. I think he told me about it once in a phone call. Um, and it was very clear that he experienced this deportation like he was falling off the face of the earth, like entering into a state beyond memory. Uh, he would say to me stuff like, will you remember me when I'm gone? Um, and not like, will you check me, but like, will you remember me? Um, like the kind of terror that that space was for him. And I always think about that. And then I ask myself these questions of like, that campaign took us from November 2017 to about June 2018, I don't think we did anything else. Like, it was like, 
18 hours a day. Like when you look at our phone records, it's like, oh, that's been done, that's been done, oh, that's been done, oh, And like we have to do it after work. So a lot of times you're up until like four in the morning and then you're going to teach at like 8.30 and then you're getting on the phone in between. Just because there's a, I mean, I'm not gonna get into the ins and outs of campaigns. It's not just the like stuff. It's like, how do you get a bus pass? How do you find a person medical care? How do you find, you know, it's all of that you're dealing with. I could have written a book in that time. Certainly I could have finished my dissertation in that time, but like, I always remind myself of Abdul sitting there and I'm like, we are the living archive. Like our duty has to be to what is living first. It has to be to living black people and then everything else after that. And I'm not saying everybody has to think that way. I'm saying there's artists that are not about that. But I think if you're a community-based artist and your work is advocacy, I think the only way to do it with integrity is first. So that means you're writing your article at two in the morning. So yeah, I'm not sitting there like, what word is best? And it's a problem until three, you know, like, like get this out fast, you know. Um, get this poem out, I have to do it. So I'm usually writing the crunch, I write them on my phone, like, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, so it, it's very much written under the circumstances. Um, and I, I wouldn't want it to be different. Like sometimes people are like, well, what if you went and did this? What if you went away? And I'm like, yeah, but then who would I be talking? And then I'd just be talking about things that I'm no longer like dealing with. And I don't know that that would resonate for you. So that's a long answer, but yeah. And that's not, again, like, that's not a dictate for everyone else. I'm just saying that's how my art works for me. Like how I feel that I'm doing the work. And again, because I'm in a position where I'm not in prison writing the work, so I have to think about that. I don't think it's right to do this work unless you've thought about who is it for, who am I speaking with, who do I have permission from, what is the impact, like those are questions you have to ask. If you're not asking those questions, I think like, you know, like there's something wrong with what you're doing. So I, I have to do that myself as well, you know. Any other questions? Sorry, go ahead. keep asking me this, so there's a few answers. Answer one is I have a strict Caribbean mother, so to a certain extent, I'm very much like, suck it up, <laughs> just do it. Because <laughs> like, you know, I have a mother that came through colonialism that lived in you know, extremely difficult circumstances. Those of you with immigrant mothers will vibe with this one. You know, you're like, mom, I don't feel like doing this. Who cares about your feelings? <laughs> your grandmother didn't feel like scrubbing floors. You know? So I do think I have some of that energy where I'm just kind of like, I mean, the Jones woman never rests. Like, you, you know, what, when I look at what my grandma, so I think that kind of labor, for good or for bad, I think it obviously has a negative side for black women. Obviously, how our labor is exploited. <coughs> obviously, the image of the strong black woman. But on the other hand, this is what makes us organized. Just right, like we're trained from birth. So to a certain extent, it's like, it just is. Like, that's what life is. And you just go out and do it because it needs to be done the way our grandmothers went out and did what needs to be done. So that's answer one. Um, answer two is, I never find the work itself I could talk to prisoners all day. Like, I mean, it's, it's traumatic. It's definitely like you have effects where you're like, afterwards learn, realize you're like, Audre Lorde talks about this, right? Like mm -hmm. you, and then you come home and you're like, where the fuck my keys? You know, like you just like start <laughs> freaking out. Like, and that's definitely true. Like, I think there's definitely uh, impacts, but I don't find the work, I'm not the one in the trauma. So my responsibility is to be there and like walk step by step because there's always a fear with the people advocating with that you can step off at any minute. There's always that idea that they know that if you say, I'm too tired today, you don't have to pick up the phone. You can, ah, I want to take a nap. But they can't get out of where they are. So I think that's part of like the challenge to yourself is like, 
they can, and then they're going to wonder why I'm not picking up, and then they have to worry, is she not working anymore? So, like, don't I have it? Once I make the commitment, I mean, Abdul and I had that conversation, and we and then we had a conversation among ourselves, like me and Desmond and Adil, and everybody was working on it, Sandy, you know, we were like, how far are we going to go on this? Like, will we lie down on a runway? Like, will we stand up on a plane? Will we get arrested? And, like, once the answer is yes, then you just, you know? Um, but, like, so I think that's part of it, like, understanding that you don't take these things up lightly, and if you're going to do them, you do them with your whole self. Um, the third is that, so I, I, I found a lot of joy in it. Like, I say this in my book, but when I saw Abdul on the street after we stopped that deportation, it was the most joyous moment of my life. I don't think I've ever felt so much joy as hugging Abdul in freedom. You know, this thing we work for. Um, there was a, a guy that just got out who's been in for like eight years, 10 years maybe. Um, and the last time we talked, he's like, you know, my phone's about to run out, but I don't care because next time I call you, it's going to be from a number on the outside. And then I was like, next time in freedom, you know? And then the next time he called me, he was on the outside. Like, you feel so happy when those things happen. Like, the, the joy that you feel there, like, I, I can't, it doesn't come anywhere else. And the kind of solidarity from the prisons, like, the guys have read my book and, like, they're just hilarious with it, right? Like, they're just like, I'm like, so what do you think of the prince? I'm like, that's fine, but do you really eat popsicles? Like, oh, you know, they're like debating, like, my eating habits. And they're like, oh, but we read that chapter you talk about being scared to miss a phone call. Like, you can't do that. And he's like, they're like lecturing me on like self care stuff, you know? Because, so it's, like when, I, like, when I didn't get the job I wanted, I remember I was like lying on the floor crying, and one of them called me and said, what are you doing? Like, Actually, I'm lying on the floor crying, like, as a matter of fact. He's like, fuck, get off! Like, you know, like, he's like, you're awesome, go fucking staple them in the eyes! <laughs> you know? So, like, but that's when you work with people and you, you walk together, like you build that love, right? So I think there's a lot of rewards that come back that way. I don't find that hard. I find it harder, yeah, like dealing with my university that won't hire me. Like, my, my source of like 90% of my like unhappiness is like job related. Um, like not being able to get one related and worrying about money and stuff like that. And like people following you around, stupid Nazis and like, you know, dumbass shit like that. And like people getting, like it's that stuff, but it's not the work. Um, and then I think the final answer, I know I'm giving a long answer. Um, I don't really believe in self-care. I believe in community care. So I believe that the lack of, whatever lack of care I feel I experience is happening to me because the people I care for aren't cared about. If people cared about prisoners and deportees, they would care about my work. My university would hire me if they gave a shit about people who are criminalized. They don't, so therefore they don't care what I do either, right? So it's only just the reflection down here of what's happening down here, right? So the only way we solve that is by caring for each other. So then I think of, you know, Fatuma, Abdul's sister, and like the next time Trudeau came through town, actually just a couple months ago, she said, you didn't tell me Trudeau was in town. I'd have gone to protest and I'm just, just to protest him, I hate him, you know? And I'm like, I've created a monster, you know? <laughs> but like, cause she does that for kids, you know? And like, so I see that and I'm like, yo, Fatuma's such an amazing activist. Like this working class, unrecognized woman that's like out here that will, is like step into Trudeau whenever she can, you know? Like that's what care is, you know? Yeah, it's the, the prisoners that are like, I'm gonna send you, Ten, like when I told them how much I make for a course, they're like, five G's. They're like, I make, what kind of deal? <laughs> like, you know, like, like all of that. And it, it's so beautiful because it's earned and it, it's, it's worked on. So um, like as much as sort of on a personal, depending on what day you catch me on, I'm like complaining. I'm a big on complaints. Like I complain all the time. But like in the end, I know that the degree to which any, I'm, first of all, I am living in freedom, which is the first and most immense privilege. Um, so how, I'm not really going to complain versus that. And second of all, yeah, I mean, um, the care that we have, we build together, and we have to keep building on that care to build the world we want. And that means, as Desmond says, that it's, you don't have to be religious for it to be a religious project. We have to wake up every day and die for a world we're not going to see. You know, that's what we do. We sacrifice every day, and we have to do that, and we do it together. And if we do it enough, we should have the world that we want. So um, I think that's 
sort of my, my series of answers. But yeah, sometimes it sucks. Like sometimes I'm like lying in bed and like crying or you know like whatever, like staring at my phone to numb myself out or whatever. You know, like I'm a human being, but ultimately like the work is bigger than us, right? And I think when we keep that in mind, I think it keeps you going. And then you see other people also. I think we're. Um, you gotta go and you gotta take a bus. And can I just ask you to speak really quickly about your work? Well, I would actually and Fran? Fran, Fran, please. Fran would be Both of you.
people getting up talking to shit. Who fucking cares? <laughs> you know, and the bottom line is, who really gives a shit if you're in fucking jail too? Who gives a shit? Let's keep it real. Unless you got a family member or know somebody that knows somebody else, then it becomes a little more real in your own backyard. And the thing is, you know, they can put us in jail for 50 years, but the reality is we're coming out. You know, and what are we coming out to? You know, I don't know. I don't know what all to try, but I learned one thing. I might be one drop, but you know what? Together we're an ocean, and that's how it works. People gotta stand together, whether it's for the water, land, or for the women. You need to stand together, and it doesn't matter what color, what race you are. Everybody needs water, and everybody needs land. And you know, it's going quick. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.